Welcome back to Blockstars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of these technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. Today, we're continuing our interview with Stefan Thomas, founder and CEO of Coil and my former Ripple colleague. We're continuing our conversation about the ILP ecosystem and its development. So, you know, at Ripple, we talk a lot about the Internet of Value, making payment as easy as an email. That's kind of our vision. How do you think ILP or web monetization or COIL fit into that vision? Well, so, you know, obviously when I was uh, when I was still at Ripple, I also asked myself the question of like, could we partner with our you know bank customers to roll out into Ledger and where that sort of went is, is Intelligent, I think, very much informed a lot of the technologies that we've built at Ripple uh, since we started working on Intelledger. I think it's made a lot of other Ripple products better. The internet, you know, used to be that you had different infrastructure for the telegraph system, the phone system, or you had like uh, broadcasters had their own sort of infrastructure for, for transferring their broadcasts around and then uh, tra- like transmitting them to homes. There's radio all these kinds of things. And like the internet is sort of like a generic communications infrastructure. You can use it for any kind of communication you want. And so now, you know, if we're having this call over the internet, um, a lot of people watching videos over the internet instead of over uh, terrestrial TV or cable. And it's sort of become this like unified communications infrastructure. And so you can ask yourself like, okay, well, what would that look like for payments? And like in payments, the way it works today is you have all this, pre-funded capital that is use case specific. So, you know, if I'm a big uh, corporation, I probably have money pre-funded around the world to to pay my vendors. If I'm a uh, remittance company, I probably have money pre-funded around the world. If I'm a payments company or a merchant acquirer, just pretty much anyone who, who, who moves other people's money, if I'm a bank, I have capital that's tied up in the provision of liquidity so that I can you know, either make markets between currencies or kind of pre-fund so I can make transactions more quickly than waiting for the money to get there. And a lot of that is redundant, right? So you have all these different companies have their own set of of capital that they have dedicated for that purpose. And to me, that that reminded me a lot of the situation pre-internet where you had all these different communications companies that had their own cables and their own wires and their own satellites and so on. And the internet just makes it so that I can route over other people's infrastructure, even if my use case isn't even something that they ever contemplated when they built that system. So that's really the the way that I think about intelligent in the long run. It's like it should be this sort of general infrastructure for the, the movement of value. What kind of shape was Interledger in when you started Coil? So it was an idea in the lab, and then you decided that to take this massive real-world use case of web monetization and apply this technology. It almost feels like you were kind of trying to build YouTube like in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, very much so. Like, it's it's kind of funny. Like, I I've actually used that example of you can't build Skype until you the internet exists. Like, Skype would just not be a good product unless you have something like the internet that can run over. And even if you have the internet, it has to have enough bandwidth and be low enough latency, and it just has to be good enough. And you need people who have access to it too, right? Like, because if if I want to if I want to Skype with fifty people and only thirty of them have the ability to easily get internet access, even if the internet's great, like it has to be widely available. Yeah. So, 
It's actually funny to, to um, tell a story of like what we did after we started Coil. The first thing we did is we made a new version of Codius that was using Interledger. And it was pretty rough around the edges. Like There were a lot of usability issues and things like that. But what it forced us to do is it forced us to iron out a lot of the problems with the Interledger network itself. And the reason we did it with Codius as an open source project, as opposed to kind of just building our product and, and kind of developing the infrastructure along with that, was that we didn't want our brand to be you know, dragged down by Intelligent not working properly, right? So it took us about a year to get Intelligent to work well. And then we you know, put Codius on hold again or kind of put it on the back burner. And then we launched our main product on top of that network that we had helped to build. So yeah, that was kind of how we got from the theory to the practice. And, and I actually would say like that process was pretty good approach. Like I would do it the same way again, if, if, if given the chance. So fast forward to today, we're halfway, more than halfway through 2020. What kind of shape is Interledger in? What kind of real world adoption deployment is there now? Yeah, so we have two commercial wallets. At the beginning, we would work with whoever we could get. Like if you, if you were remotely capable of, of being on the Interledger network, we wanted you to be. And, and now it's like, no, it's like licensed institutions doing a good job uh, serving their customers. Yeah, I, rem- I remember a situation where um, there was someone else who was considering joining the Interledger ecosystem. And your reaction was essentially that there was a well-run, well-managed company struggling to occupy that space and that giving them competition would just create two struggling companies fighting for this very small amount of volume. And you have certain fixed costs when you have a business. So if you're fighting for this very, very small amount of business with, you know, against somebody else, you know, that, that now you just have two struggling companies instead of one. Yeah, I mean, it's like after 10 years of, of working on payment networks, essentially, you start to kind of pick up on some very pragmatic realities. And like one of those pragmatic realities is like, yeah, you can, you can do a lot with investment. You can do a lot with goodwill, cool technology. People will spend their own personal time to work on. But at some point, you need to get to, you know, like financial viability, right? You need to make it sustainable. And so with Interledger, we're pretty much doing our best to to go straight there, like as, on the most direct path that we can we can come up with. And for us, that means like doing what we can to promote this this use case of web monetization. We are doing some things to lay the groundwork for other people to use Interledger for other use cases as well, because I think that also starts to become increasingly important over time. But we also trying to be very realistic. Like this is an incredibly ambitious project. It is a very long-term project. And so far the kind of growth tra- trajectory that Intelledger is on and that Coil is on, it seems to validate that approach as, as the right one. Do you get the feeling that things are moving very quickly? Do you sometimes get the feeling that things are taking forever? I get both of those feelings sometimes at the same time about the same thing. My favorite quote on that topic is one that's, I believe, attributed to Bill Gates, which is, People always vastly overestimate how much progress can be made in two years, but they always underestimate how much can be made in 10. And now that it's been 10 years of me working on that, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, we talked about how how much the price has moved compared to where I thought it would be and like just how much interest and investment there is in the payments and fintech space compared to what, what it was 10 years ago and blockchain and crypto. And yeah, I definitely would have underestimated that, but I also would have overestimated how much we could do in each of those two-year periods. So it's kind of weird how, how the mind works in that in that sense. So how do you feel about the industry overall and uh, trying to improve the payment infrastructure? So I would say like the, the crypto industry, I've definitely gone through somewhat of a 
hype cycle in the sense that, you know, I got incredibly excited early on. I was telling everyone who wouldn't block me about Bitcoin, how great it was and, and how interesting crypto was and blockchain centralization, how it's the future and everything. I was that guy. And I, I apologize to everyone who I, <laughs> I offended with that. But also, like, I think at that time, it was sort of like everyone's reaction was completely dismissive. And then over time, I think what happened socially was like the growth of mining. So mining became like an industry that you could make money with. And the second thing was just the price increase. So like you could hold Bitcoin or other cryptos and make a lot of money. And that started to attract like a different crowd than the the early crowd. I think a lot of the early crowd were people who frankly got into it for fairly altruistic reasons as far as I can tell. Like a lot of them were talking about how to make payments better. If you talk to a lot of people from that era, like a lot of them haven't ended up with a lot of Bitcoins because they just weren't super interested in like the investment side of it. Or maybe they lost a wallet because they weren't like super concerned with with keeping that around. Um, and, you know, I'm in that boat too. Like I lost a big wallet just because like, you know, I was more interested in writing Bitcoin JS and I was like, I always tell the story like I fell asleep with my face on the keyboard and I would wake up and have the keys imprinted on my face. You know, um, that's that's why I was concerned about. It. I wasn't really concerned about the investment side of it. And I think that kind of took over. And I know I sound a little bit like a hipster there, but like, um, you know, the business, the business suits came in, took over. Um, and so then my my interest started to kind of um, shift a little bit away from crypto and blockchain and towards more like payments and fintech. I think that was kind of lucky that I ended up at Ripple where that sort of transition was also welcome. And like, you know, Ripple was very interested in working with the financial industry and not just being very dogmatic about like, oh, blockchain's better than everything else. So it's just a question of how do we replace everything with blockchain, you know, but rather like how do we, what's the best way to solve a given problem? And so it was really good to have that approach so that you could like let the technology lead you where it, where it would. So you were clearly intensely personally motivated. And I'm curious if that was around the sort of technical challenge and the excitement of just solving a technical problem. Was it around more philosophical issues like financial inclusion or financial freedom? Or was it a combination of things? What, what, was, what was going on? I think the, the thing that sticks out in my mind was just the, the experience as a freelancer. Like one of the things that happened to me is like I lost my bank account. And suddenly, like, my boss couldn't pay me. And then so we had to come up with a, with a way for him to, like, send me cash in the mail. Like, it's just, like, having gone through the experience and, like, the contrast of being a web developer and everything being instant and efficient and hyper-optimized, the communication side of things, but then being incredibly clunky and inhumane and convoluted on the on the financial side or payment side that contrast i think was what really like i could never wrap my head around it it was just like how can we be so behind in one technology and so ahead in another that's something Americans sometimes have difficulty grasping because, first of all, we're so overbanked in this country. And also, most Americans rarely need to make international payments. So they don't get to experience what uh, people like you, I'm sure, experienced uh, traveling internationally and working internationally. Yeah, it's very much one of those things where, you know, if you're that 80% use case, you're doing fine. You know, it's similar to a lot of other things where, like, you know, when you have big organizations, they will cater to that 80% case and then they will not care about the 
20% case or the 10% case or any of the millions of 0.00001% cases. And so if you're in that group, then you have a very different experience with the same system, the same operator, whatever, than the people who are in, in the majority, I think. And, and that's also like, I think where the appreciation of decentralization ultimately comes from is a decentralized system is good for all the non-majority people. Like for the majority people, a centralized system is great because the, the central majority is going to care what they think, you know, because they're the majority. So the, the central authority will have to listen to them. But if you're one of those, don't want to use a politically charged term, but like if you're one of those more marginalized people on the fringes of the system, that central authority is not going to care at all what you do other than maybe if, if you know, there's sympathy among the majority and they sort of like kind of push the authority to, to not be. But like that's very different than me choosing a, a an operator out of a selection of different operators because of the decentralized system and like the operators that serve what might be a niche, but they serve it really well, will get business from that niche, you know? And so that's, I think, really the power of a decentralized system is you have choice and you can reward people for catering to your needs, even if they're not the majority need. Would you say that what you're working on right now is building out the Interledger ecosystem? <laughs> I mean, this is really interesting because like, you know, obviously I wear these different hats. Like I have my, you know, IntelliJ community hat and, and being like a co-creator of the protocol. And then I have my coil hat where I'm the CEO of a company where, you know, our employees are also shareholders and they certainly want that those shares to, to be valuable someday. And so I would say that the first, my first duty is always to the people, right? Like it's, it's to the employees, uh, to the people who've put their professional reputations on the line to support some of the things that we're doing. And then the second thing I think about is like, I... Very diplomatic answer. I believe that something like Intelligent will eventually happen. And I think this is a generally a, a kind of a challenge that, that any kind of activist deals with. It's like, if you want something to happen and you think it's inevitable, how do you motivate yourself to work on it happening, to make it happen sooner, I guess, or like happen in a better way maybe. And so I think for me, Intelligent is this thing where like, like let's get there sooner and let's get there in a more direct way and in a way that's like, makes the most sense possible, includes the most people possible and so on. And so that's kind of what motivates me to work on that side of things. And then as far as like Coil is concerned, like I really want Coil to be successful. Um, but we also try not to be too dogmatic about how. Like, for example, we invest in companies that are media companies where we think that they will do well if web monetization takes off because they'll make more money. And so even if Coil itself doesn't become a very popular web monetization provider, we'll still have these stakes in other companies that are doing well in that system. So we don't have to be as ruthless competing for market share as a web monetization provider, hopefully. And I think that's more in line with these other goals that we have as well. And I think you gotta, you gotta try to be congruent with like your different goals that you're pursuing at the same time. So we're just about out of time. So I'm going to tell a story from your time at Ripple, and then I'm going to ask you to tell a story. So <clears throat> you can't pay attention to the good natured ribbing in my story because you're too busy thinking of a story for you to tell. So Stefan had just decided to leave Ripple. He was uh, CTO and Brad Garlinghouse called me into a meeting and he said, we have to replace Stefan Thomas as CTO. And I said, why? And he said, well, if we don't, people will think that he wasn't doing anything at Ripple. So I said, oh, yeah, good point. OK, I guess that's true. We got to have another CTO. And so Brad said that he wanted me to do it. And I said, OK, sure. 
And um, as Stefan was uh, in one of his last days, he um, had a meeting with me and he said he wanted to give me one piece of advice, you know, in my taking over his role as CTO. And I said, what was that? And he told me one of the most useful things that anyone has ever told me. He said, you can say no. And that has been one of the most fantastic pieces of advice that I have ever gotten. And one of the things that Stefan and I talked about a lot while we were both working at Ripple is that we can do anything but not everything. And we have to decide how many things can we do. And sometimes we'd have an argument, like, can we do a fourth thing? Can we do a third thing? Like, what, what, what are our resources? Because you want to do the things that you're doing well. You know, doing 10 things mediocre is, is much less useful than doing one thing very, very well. It's the same as the peanut butter concept that Brad Garlinghouse is famous for. And so that piece of advice, you can say no, uh, has just been tremendously useful. And every time someone asks me to do something, I hear Stefan's voice in the back of my head. And I think, like, realistically, is this going to detract from the quality of the things that I've already committed to doing? For those of you who may not know, Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO at Ripple, was formerly at Yahoo, where he authored something called the Peanut Butter Manifesto, which was a famous paper that argued that if you're like peanut butter, just sort of spread everywhere, just very thin, you may be good at a lot of things, but a successful business has to be great at something. And so you don't want, you don't want to be spread around like peanut butter. You want to focus on something that you can do really, really well. All right, Stefan, you got a story for us? Uh, do I have a story? Well, so I really want to tell a story about like the early days at Ripple and, and kind of like what it felt like. I don't know if the story has much of a punchline, but like if I am successful, I will get at least the sort of general feeling across. And it's sort of like when I joined and, and I originally didn't have a visa for the U.S., so I could only come for a short period of time initially. And during that time, uh, Ripple was called OpenCoin. It was working out of a co-working space called uh, Rocket Space. And we were just sort of a handful of, of people. And I don't know how many, but like maybe six, seven, eight tops. Despite the total lack of glamour, of that situation, like the, I still was sort of awestruck by what this group of people had come together to tackle and work on, you know, and it's just been incredibly, I mean, I don't, I don't, I've never stuck with a project for 10 years, you know what I mean? So it's been incredibly rewarding and motivating to work with everyone on this. And so I'm just incredibly grateful that you guys decided to work with me and like offer me a job and, and everything. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been an incredible pleasure working with you. Uh, and thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's podcast, Block Stars. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to the Ripple team on Twitter at Ripple. See you around the blockchain.